new, but it's actually, it's, a day was set aside since the early 1500s. Uh, the Catholic Church has been celebrating uh, a day to commemorate fatherhood since 1508, to be exact. And it was held in March. Uh, it was done in conjunction with St. Joseph's Day, the, the Feast of St. Joseph, um, Jesus' father. So the, the, the folks at the time decided it would be a good time to, to honor them on that day. The first known Father's Day, as we, as we now know it, was celebrated in 1908. And really, it was, it was done as a day. It was more of a memorial service uh, for 361 men. 250 of them were fathers who died in December 1907 in a mining disaster in Mononga, West Virginia. I don't even know where Mononga is, but 250 fathers died, leaving over 1,000 children fatherless. Freak accident. And so they, they celebrated uh, this day. They, they, again, had this memorial service for them. Fast forward a few years. Um, Mother's Day had already been established. And a lady by the name of Sarah Smart Dodd told her pastor in, in Spokane, Washington, she said um, she, she heard a message, um, a Mother's Day message, and she didn't have a mom. Her father was a single dad of six kids. And she went to her pastor and said, we need to celebrate fathers like we do mothers. So an initiative was put together and many uh, clergymen in Spokane on June 19th, 1910, had a community-wide message celebrating fathers. Um, it wasn't until 1966 that Lyndon B. Johnson issued the first presidential proclamation honoring fathers, designating the third son in June as Father's Day. Six years later, the day was made a permanent national holiday by Nixon. Now, in between 19... 10 and 1966, there were efforts to pass the day in government, but um, there were folks who thought that by having a day for fathers, it'd be too commercialized. Um, well, you know, they foreshadowed, they, they knew, because today, actually, for many people in the Thai industry, for example, um, it's their second Christmas. Uh, there are folks who make a boatload of money um, as kids buy their dad's ties, they never, ever will wear. Um, think of that Cosby show. <laughs> um, but it, um, just a little info, tidbit of useless information about, about Father's Day. But Father's Day itself means different things for, for different people. Even as Christians, even for us as a small body, uh, we might each feel differently about today. So we're all here. We're all at church. What do we want to walk away with this Father's Day? I could just make it real, real simple. You know, we have a heavenly Father, God in heaven, who, who takes incredible care of us, provides for us. Um, let's just keep celebrating him and worshiping him. Um, you know, I was expecting a few amens. <laughs> um, but tell you all these things, and mind you, tell you quickly, so we can go home to some good food. I have oxtail waiting for me at home. Thank you, my love. Um, I've already gotten text messages about whether we're eating oxtail today. So, um, 
But it's more than that. It's not about our good food that we will eat. It's, today is not going to be about our obligatory naps, even though some of us will take one. Um, there was a, a gentleman. His name is Anthony Salvaggio. He's a teaching elder in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. And in an article, he says this. Being a father is the hardest thing I've ever done. It is a job filled with endless opportunities to fail and many occurrences of failure. It also seems as though children are particularly adept at spotting and remembering these. We all remember the sins of our father. The Bible remembers them as well. It vividly records the failures of many fathers. Today, I want to take a look at uh, two folks from the Bible. Folks that we can hopefully learn something from, glean some pointers about how to do things differently. When I was younger, my, my dad used to tell me, says, smart men learn from their mistakes, wise men from the mistakes of others, and idiots just never learn. Hopefully no one can call us idiots when all is said and done. Uh, but maybe, maybe we might end up just a little bit wiser than we had hoped. Now, while today is Father's Day, um, what we're talking about speaks to all of us. It speaks to all of us as, as adults, all of us as parents and, uh, and grandparents. Because hopefully what we talk about can impact those that we, that we come in contact with, those that we touch. So the first person that I, I want to look at is Eli. Not you, Eli, but Eli <laughs> in 1 Samuel. Eli was a descendant of Aaron. He had all kinds of accolades. He had served as a judge in Israel for 40 years, and he was a high priest in the sanctuary at Shiloh. He was the person that, that Hannah brought her son Samuel to after she pledged to give her, her child, her firstborn, to the Lord's service after she became pregnant. Samuel was, of course, one of Israel's greatest prophets, and he had Eli for his teacher. He had Eli for his mentor. He had Eli for his, his stand-in dad. Now, if we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's uh, page 226 in our, in our pew Bibles. Share a little something about Eli's folks. 226. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat burned, the priest's servants would come and say to, to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not, not accept boiled meat from, what, from you, but only raw. 
And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Eli's sons were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And NIV says that Eli's sons were wicked men. They were scoundrels who had no regard for the Lord. They abused their office as priests and took advantage of their positions to satisfy their lust for power, for possessions, and control. Their contempt and arrogance toward both people and worship undermined everything the priesthood was to be about. The integrity that God had had established. They were taking parts of the sacrifices before they were offered on the altar. It may not sound like a big deal, but in Mosaic law, they were putting themselves before God. They were disrespectful. They were irreverent. Eli knew his sons were evil. If we pick it up in in the same chapter 2 and verse 22, it says, Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Eli did little to correct or stop them when the integrity of God's sanctuary was threatened. As the high priest, Eli should have had them executed. Back in Numbers 15, 22 to 31, God lays out what should happen in, in the priesthood and what should happen if anybody violates what he had in place. These priests, Eli's sons, now not as his sons, but as priests, they should have been executed by the high priest. Now, now it's easy to side with, with Eli. I don't think any of us, I know I couldn't, um, willingly, uh, even with much contemplation, execute my own children. We just couldn't. Most of us couldn't execute our children. I get it. But he chose not to confront the situation. And by not confronting them, by ignoring their selfish actions, Eli let his sons ruin their own lives and the lives of many others. He didn't realize that he was being permissive. And that his permissiveness was in fact an act of cruelty. 
harmful to a wide web of people to, to include his sons, himself, and ultimately the, the nation of Israel. I was having a conversation with my brother. He rang me up. He happens to be um, in, in social service working, for, working with children. And, and somebody told him that he was narcissistic because he thought that he could, he could help some of these kids um, who are in, 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 in ugly situations. And I said, I said you're, you're no way being narcissistic. You are, you're just doing your job. It's a function of what you do. It's not that you think you're better than. It's just that you're in a situation where you can help folks. So if you can't step in to say something to allow these kids to not hurt themselves or others, then do it. You should. You have an obligation. Here, Eli, his sons, no, it's not narcissistic. It would not have been narcissistic on his part, but his job as a good high priest much less as a good father would have been to be in his son's backsides and call them out. There are times when serious problems must, must be confronted, even if the process and the consequences are painful. We have to take a stand against wrong, even when it's being done by ones we love. When we lived in Florida, we had friends at church who, um, who put their daughter out. And um, lots of folks initially were like, you know, wow, you know, that's, that's tough, it's, it's hard. They had certain rules that they had in their house. They were trying to have a, a Christian home where they, they, they followed Christian principles. And their daughter who was... I don't know that she was, I don't know that she was 20 yet. She wanted to do things a little differently. And so they said, if, okay, if this is how you want to be, you can't be here. But, no, you cannot be here. And I remember having conversation, but, but once they expressed what, because they had a younger daughter, and they didn't, they didn't want to set a tone that would invariably affect their younger daughter, it, it, it made sense. None of us want to cast our kids out. But in order to protect their home, and invariably judgment that would have come upon them, they had to ask her to leave. Now, it didn't mean that they didn't have a relationship, because she, they ended up being grandparents, and there was love, and there was care. Um, but it did not happen, and she could not continue what she wanted to do in their house. Coming back to our story, Eli's sons, they knew better. They did. I mean, they were, they were, they were priests. They were educated. They, they knew everything that was laid out in the Mosaic law. They, they had it all there. They had to do all their studying. They had to, of course, they had their bar mitzvahs, all that good stuff. So they, they knew what God required. But even though they knew better, they continued to disobey God. Deliberately, cheating, seducing, robbing the people. Somebody comes in with nothing and they bring their offering and, and their intent is to be right with God. And these priests say, no, you know what, that's mine now. Dude, I'm bringing this for God. 
Well, if you don't give it to me, I'm taking it. But, but it's for God. What did I just tell you? you don't, you're not giving it to me, I'm taking it. So they were, they were wrong in every sense. Now, any sin is wrong. But sin carried out deliberately and deceitfully is the worst kind. Eli clearly had a difficult time rearing his sons. He didn't take strong disciplinary action with them when, when he became aware of their wrongdoing. His dilemma, I suppose, was, was that he was not just a father trying to handle his rebellious sons, but he was also the high priest ignoring the sins of priests under jurisdiction. Fast forward how many thousands of years, and we see it in, in the Catholic Church, unfortunately, where you know, there, there are bishops who can, who can relate to Eli because of what has happened in, in their church, what has happened to, to the flock. As a result of Eli's dilemma, God had to step in and take the necessary disciplinary action that Eli would not. Now, parenting is never easy. It's not. You know, I remember when, when Kristen was born and we're there in, in, in the ER, in, in, the, in, the, in the delivery room, and she came out and she's crying and she's tiny. No book followed on how to do all of this. You know, <laughs> nothing that said, okay, here's your baby now. Now here's what you got to do. So you have to figure it out, and, it, and it's not easy. There are times when it is tough, when it is draining. And we just want to make easy decisions. Kristen and I, yesterday at, at, at the office, we were talking with a patient who was just expressing herself. She, she just wanted to talk. She expressed herself about just being a single mom with her son who's an adult and then some now and the tough times that she, she was enduring and she said, you know what, I, if I'm not here then he's, he's going to have a tough time. And she continued, but sometimes we just want to make easy decisions. We, we become more lenient because it, it makes for a seemingly smoother life. The permissiveness is, is the path of least resistance. It, it's easier just to, to let things go. Keep in mind that if we don't do what we are supposed to do, God will step in. And his punishment might be way more severe at a later date than it could have been had we done what we were supposed to do when we were supposed to do it. In Eli's case, God had become so frustrated with Eli's situation and his lack of action that he ends up telling Samuel. And in, in 1 Samuel 3, 11 through 14, this is when, when Samuel gets called. We all know that story. Samuel, Samuel, and he goes to Eli, here I am. And Eli tells him, no, I didn't call you. Three times, and then Eli says, okay, if, some, if you get called again, it's God. And just tell him that you're here. So that's what happens. And, and so, so God calls Samuel. And the Lord came and stood calling at, at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, 
I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Wow. God is telling Samuel. And again, now he's a kid. We, we, we don't know exactly how young, but he's young. He had already been, been working with Eli for a little bit. But he's young, and God puts this on him. And he ends up telling Eli, by the way, a few verses later. But God tells Samuel, their sins cannot be covered by sacrifice. What they have done will never be forgiven. And they had to be punished. Wow. Wow. To Eli's credit, when Samuel tells him what happens, he said, well, if God says this is how it's to be, then it's good in God's eyes. So he, he rests in that fact. However, he done messed up. And he knew he done messed up. And so in chapter 4, verse 10, um, the Israelites are at war with the Philistines. Um, they're, getting, they're catching a beatdown from the Philistines, so they call for the ark. They bring the ark out. And in verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. When I said what Eli did affected the nation of Israel, that's how it affected the nation of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark where God rested, is now captured by the Philistines. All because these two cats chose to do what they wanted to do. And Eli didn't man up and be a father and call them out. As a man, Eli spent his entire life in service to God. His responsibility was to, to oversee all the worship in Israel. As far as we're concerned, as far as many of us are concerned, what he did for a living was, was admirable. It was honorable. Many of us would aspire to, to that. Some would, would call his, his dedication to what he did. They'd say, man, he's awesome. He's awesome. However, in pursuing his, his mission, he neglected the responsibilities of his own house. He neglected the responsibilities of his own home. So we have to be cautious not to let our desires to do good things, even things that we consider godly, 
We cannot allow those to, to cause us to neglect our families. If we do, our missions may degenerate into a quest for personal importance. And our families will, will suffer the consequences of our neglect. Fast forward a few years. Now this dude comes on the scene. His name is David. King David. The guy chosen by God. We know his story. We know it well. David, a man after God's own heart. This man after God's own heart was probably never voted dad of the year. This great man of God was severely flawed. And that's part of the appeal of David. Because he is as flawed as he is, we can all relate. However, we have to go beyond just relating and, and learn some lessons from his life. Because if we don't, then we're doomed to follow his same mistakes. His story is laid out in, 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 in the books of, of First and, and Second Samuel. His military exploits, his, his victories, his, his early trials, his triumphs, they're all there for us to celebrate. His parenting drama, however, it begins in, in 2 Samuel 13. And if we flip there, it's page 264. Here's where it tells of his personal life becoming entangled with sin. And it's, it's some deep stuff. Throughout the scripture, uh, the, the, the books here, not much is said about his parenting style or him as a father. However, we can surmise that he didn't spend much time with his children. Some, some scholars termed him an absentee father. In chapter 13, verse, uh, let's see. It kind of, all of it kind of starts in, in verse 11. But what happens here in, in chapter 13, this section of chapter 13, um, David's eldest son, his name is Amnon. He rapes his half-sister Tamar. Verse 21 in chapter 13 says, When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. He was furious. He was so angry, he went and he slapped him. No, he didn't. He was very angry, but he doesn't do anything about it. His son just raped his daughter and he did not get in his face. My boys can tell you how I feel about even having words that I don't like. Do that again. Me and you go fight. David doesn't do anything. He didn't punish him in any way. Didn't confront him. Didn't engage him. Now, of course, this is all after David had, had done his 
business, right? So, so maybe, maybe he doesn't do anything because of his own sin with, uh, with Bathsheba. Maybe he, he felt he had no moral right to rebuke his firstborn son. There's also an argument that because he was the firstborn son, he was next in line. So you don't engage the guy who's next in line. Uh, you know, to me, it doesn't matter. Maybe he just felt he didn't have that moral right. Maybe it was because he had a, a weakness that, that fostered a tendency to fatherly indulgence. Either way, he lacked the skill. He lacked the sensitive, sensitivity of a father to address some serious, serious concerns. Later on in chapter 13, Tamar's brother Absalom, David's third son, he kills Amnon. Verse 37 to 39. So hold on, before I read that, he, he kills his brother and he flees. He takes off. Nobody's going to find me in Syria or wherever he goes, but you know, nobody's going to find me. David, being David, verse 37 of chapter 13, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur, who happened to be his grandfather. And David mourned for his son day after day. King David mourned for his son every day and longed for him. He just killed his brother. And David is mourning for him. I can't, I can't make sense of those emotions. I, I just can't. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, he's mourning. Murder has just happened in his home. And he is not meting out lethal punishment. He is not addressing in the grave. He's the king. He has resources in much supply. He doesn't deploy anything to go get his son. To dish out the punishment that is, is deserved. Justice demanded that punishment of some kind for Absalom. But David chose instead to sidestep the issue. His, his sons were spoiled. They were completely self-centered with regard only for themselves. There was, there was no care for the king or for the rest of the family. They would just do whatever they want to do. And in fact, three years passes. Absalom ends up coming back to Jerusalem. And this dude, never mind the, and let's call it mercy, that he received from David, right? Nothing happens. There's no gratitude. In fact, he schemes, he plots. He conspires to take David's throne. He leads the, the rebellion against his father. What a dude. What a dude. 
kills his brother, starts a rebellion against his father. And later on in chapter 18, after there's much fighting, Absalom gets killed. David mourns for his son and even declares that it should have been him who died instead of his son. (laughs) David loved his son, clearly. But he loved him to a fault. One commentary I read, it, it notes that it would have been kinder in several, several magnitudes kinder and more loving to deal with Absalom and his runaway ego when he was younger. It was never checked. And David created an environment where selfishness thrived. He had another son. He had lots of sons, but another son, Adonijah. He was the fourth son. And um, David's getting up in age. It's about 70. He's nowhere near as good a shape as Mr. David. Um, All the years of war, all the fights, certainly all the family drama, it's taking its toll on, uh, on David. He's in poor health. He's winding down. His son, Adonijah, instead of being there for his father to just to help, to support, to love on him, Adonijah declares himself king. I know Pops is over here hurting and he's, he's about to go, but I'm king. I'm king. It made sense because he was a fourth son. His older brothers were all raw deceased, so he was next. So it made sense. Uh, however, um, God had already told David who the next king was going to be. Adonijah knew who the next king was going to be, but he didn't care. He just said, you know what, I'm going to preempt everything. and I'm declaring myself king. Had his coronation. Folks come and they, they, they tell what happened. David says, okay, get Bathsheba, get Solomon. And so there, there are two coronations happening at once. <laughs> what God has in place and what Adonijah has in place. All of this is in, uh, in 1 Kings, so page 279. We'll pick it up in verse 5. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, What have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. David, still king, 
Never mind what Adonijah wants to do or what he has said. David is still king. He's still on the throne. He still has all authority over Israel. But he does not call his son out. (laughs) Dude, there's all this catastrophe. And of course, Nathan told him this was going to be the case, right? Back when he got busted with, with Bathsheba. And Nathan says, dude, your family's going to... Have some rough times. There's going to be all kinds of infighting. All kinds of stuff is going to happen. Your family will only know the sword. So he knew it was going to happen, but still, he does not address his son. He doesn't call his son out. He he fails again at putting another one of his sons in check. The bigger question... Or, or issue is why would Adonijah think it was okay to seize the throne from David? Why would he think he could do that without David's knowledge? David's king, right? He's, he's going to find out anyway. But why would Adonijah think that he could do this? Why would he think he could maneuver behind David's back when he knew that Solomon again was the first choice to be the next king? In verse 6 here, it, it, it makes a point of saying that, that he was very handsome. Referencing his, his good looks was synonymous with getting his way. His brother before him was the same way. When they talked about Saul way back when and how good looking he was, there was... Attached to that, he could do whatever he wanted. He was head and shoulders above everybody else, so he was adored by others, so he could do what he wanted. That's the case here. It was, it was the case with Absalom. Now it's the case with Adonijah. Think of all these movie stars, and of, well, it's Me Too movement now, so everybody's coming back, but all these folks who thought because of where they were, they could just do whatever they wanted. You know, the Errol Flynn effect, you know, this, my, my grandfather, unfortunately, he was like that. He, he was this good-looking guy, so he thought he could do whatever he wanted. Thought everybody should just swoon after him. <laughs> Bit him in the back, eventually, but that's how this picture is painted. He had all this charm. He could get his own way. They were good-looking, charming guys who didn't have to work very hard to get what they wanted. They were proud, self-exalted. You would have thought Adonijah would have seen what happened to Absalom and said, you know what, breaks. (laughs) I ain't trying to go that route. But he didn't. The lesson was right there in front of him and he chose not, not to learn that lesson. In, Adon- in Adonijah's case, David never interfered. This translation says it displeased him by opposing him or, or questioning him. 
by not questioning him, not engaging him. Earlier, maybe even much earlier, Adonijah did not know how to work within limits, resulting in him always wanting his own way regardless of how it affected others. He did whatever he wanted. He paid no respect to God's wishes. He was undisciplined. We see it in in the stores as we're out and about, you know, wherever we are. And an undisciplined child may look cute to his or her parents, but an undisciplined adult destroys himself and others. As we set limits for our children, we make it possible for them to to develop the self-restraint that they will need in order to control themselves later. As parents, we have to discipline our children carefully while they are young so that they will not grow into self-disciplined or self-exalted adults. If we, if we want them to, to be a certain way, we have, to, we have to start early. Some people learn that lesson quicker than others, but we still have to, to start when they're little. So God-fearing people like David, they were, they were used by God to, to lead nations, to lead hundreds of thousands of people. But unfortunately... Um, He had problems in family relationships. So God-fearing leaders cannot take for granted the the spiritual well-being of their children. We cannot take for granted the spiritual well-being of our children. They might be used to having others follow their directions, take orders, when they say jump, people usually ask how high. But they cannot expect their children to, to manufacture faith upon request. Moral and spiritual character takes years to build and requires constant attention and, and patient discipline. David served God well as king. I mean, You think of the Bible, you think of the Old Testament, he's the first person you think about. He served God well as king. But as a parent, (laughs) he failed God, and he certainly failed his children. So we we can't let our service to to God, even, even in leadership positions. I'm speaking to myself now, but we can't let these things take up so much of our time and energy that we neglect our other God-given responsibilities. Some parents spoil their children by, 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 by just giving them so much that they don't learn to work or develop initiative to, to obtain things by their own effort. Um, society is such now that um, giving is, is, is easy a lot of times. 
Are, there's so much affluence that, that our kids just, they don't have to exercise any control. It is a grave mistake for a father, for a parent for that matter, to, to give his children everything that they desire. And shield them from the hardships and, and the difficulties of life. There can be no, no, no strength of character developed without personal effort. If there's, if there's no energy put out, how will they grow? They can't. They can't. Spoiled young people, instead of winning life battles, they throw up the, the white flag, they surrender when they face life's hard realities. It's by work and sacrifice that, that children will succeed in life. Now, I'm not saying crack a whip, by no means. But in Lamentations 3, 27, the word tells us that it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It's good that while he's young and while he's able, he can carry some of that weight that, that comes with learning. Psalm 119.71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. So it's good that, that adversity came my way. Because of adversity, I was able to jump into your word, pour into your word, and learn from your word how to cope, how to manage we as parents, we need to, to teach our children to be responsible. Whining and crying to get our way <laughs> invariably leads to failure. It does. It does. And on, just because of life, in our home, we don't have it to where we can just dole out cash to our kids. You know, they can't just come and say, hey, dad, you know, can you spot me a 20? Because we don't have it like that. It was in March, Kristen called me. She said, dad, I'm coming home for, for spring break. Can I come to work? I don't tell that story to brag on Kristen. But I feel like she gets it. We are by no means done in our parenting, but they understand. Some energy has to be put out, and they will be rewarded as such. If we consider the, the personal sorrow and grief to David and his entire family because of his, his poor son, just, just think about what these three boys just think about what they did to his family. There isn't, I don't think any of us can imagine the degree of grief caused. But why? Why? They were just spoiled and wanted what they wanted, when they wanted it, how they wanted it, so they could just do whatever they wanted to do. Now, as we parent, we can't guarantee how our children will turn out. We just can't. 
We have no idea who or how they'll be. I had an opportunity last night to, to talk to Kieran, and, and we were just talking about some stuff. And I was saying, son, you have, to, you have to figure out who you want to be. And that takes some time, but we have to figure it out. And hopefully I get to, get to be a part of that journey with him as we figure out who we are going to be. Are we going to be leaders? Are we going to be followers? We don't know. We could do the best possible job we can as parents and our kids not end up like we, we want them to end up. Or vice versa, we can be completely negligent parents and our kids end up as fantastic, fantastic people, fantastic human beings. It's a journey, right? And we just, we just don't know. There are no guarantees. I can only hope and trust that if I do what God tells me to do as a parent, that things will turn out for the better. The onus then is for me to actually follow his direction that he's laid out for me as a parent. Now, in order to do that, I have to know what he's telling me to do. I can't just say this is what God wants me to do without not turning to his word to actually plow into it. As we think about the Bible and we think about verses that are laid out for us as parents, and most of us, Maybe not most, but many of us will think of two passages. Verse 26, turn up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's the, that's the one that most of us know. Proverbs thirteen twenty four: whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So those are kind of the, the passages that we rest on a lot of times, especially as Christian parents. That's, that's what we walk away with. That's what the word tells us, and that's what we got to do. Now, flip side, um, we can administer discipline, but we can over-discipline. And that we'll talk about some of that next week. But we can, we can be so rigid that we chase our kids away from Jesus and not even realize we're doing it until it's too late. So, so we have to pour into what God is telling us so that we can we can find that, that happy medium, find that, that middle ground. We also, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but we also need to be mindful that parenting isn't just about our own kids. It's not. We oftentimes are mentors. We are teachers. We are friends. Unbeknownst to us, there are young people who, who look to us. We didn't talk about Samuel as a father, but he was a failure too. He was. Unfortunately, he followed the example of his standing dad. And he messed up. So, we don't realize the effect that we'll have on other people that are around us. Sometimes until it is too late. So we have to be intentional about who we are and how we are as we go about dealing with our days. We have an obligation. Laid up by God, we have an obligation to everybody that we come in contact with, everybody we interact with. So that hopefully, 
we can help to create better young folks. See, there's, there's more to parenting. It just is. I'm no expert on it. Unfortunately, if I were to be honest and grade myself, I might be a C minus. Just barely passing, right? But a lot of days I feel like I'm, I'm far away from an A. But what I do know is that God's got my back. And so the onus is on me. It's not about perfection, but it's the striving to be the best possible parent that I can be. For all of us, the best possible parent, the best possible grandparent, the best possible friend. Thank you, Brian Santos. That's kind of just my own personal moment. But there is more to this whole parenting thing. And next week, um, I, I plan to dig on it, dig into it a, a, a little bit more. When all is said and done, those of us who, who walk in Christ, our primary mission field is not Upper Marlboro, it's not D.C. or Baltimore, it's not Jamaica. Our primary mission field, in my case, is 3031 Traymore Lane. It's my home. It is. And that's true of all of us here. Our primary mission fields are our homes. So if we have to, so we have to take seriously what God has in place for us, not only as spouses, but also as parents. We'll walk through some of that next week, but just ponder some of the things that, that we've said today, because again, it's, it's not about Father's Day. A couple of weeks ago, it wasn't about Mother's Day. But about us, as people who genuinely seek after God, impact the people that he's blessed us, blessed us with. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, um, it really didn't matter the folks that were in front of me this morning, Father God, you, you convicted me. And um, help me, Father, to be be better. Help all of us, Father God, to, to pour into your word to be, to be not better fathers, not better husbands, not better friends, but better Christians, better people who, who want to do incredible, incredible work and justice to your kingdom, Father God. That's all that matters. If we're better kingdom followers, everything else should fall into place. So Lord, strengthen us, equip us, Help us to be humble on this journey, Father God, because it's not about us. It's not about how we look. It's not about our charm. It is about how, how hard we hold on to you, Father God. Help us to do just that. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word that we can pour into it, Father God, and, and pick up nuggets that cause us to be more like Christ. We love you, Father God, and we are just so grateful for the opportunity to serve you, to worship you, and to be called children of God. Happy Father's Day to you, Father God. And thank you for being the loving Father that you are. In Jesus' name, we praise and give thanks. Amen.